thank you to the worship team. That is always exciting to see new faces and young faces. Sorry, Ben. Uh, But it is exciting to see young faces, too, up there. Well, this morning, we are actually reaching the end of 1 John. Some of you thought it would never actually happen, and you may look at it one way, I look at it in another. I feel like I need to apologize and start all over because obviously I am only an amateur at this. I look at the great expository preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones. I was curious this week because I know he preached through First John and he preached 67 sermons through First John and this is only our 31st. We didn't even get halfway there. So it tells you we left a few things on the table. I lived another hundred years Maybe we could get back to it. But 1 John was written, as we know, so that we could have assurance of our salvation, our eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray as we near the end of this that the evidences of the faith that we have looked at, that the Holy Spirit has provided through the Apostle John, have indeed built your confidence or convicted your heart and drawn you ever nearer to Christ, uh, that they have built your faith that it has improved your desire to come and to worship Him. It has caused in you a desire to pursue holiness in your life and purity. Because we always have to remember that we owe every single second of every day to the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in Romans 11.36 that for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. All things are from Him. All things are ultimately done to His glory. And all things are from Him. This morning's passage focuses in tightly on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Steve Lawson, another great expositor in his own right, he wrote this, and I just thought this was a beautiful quote about what Christianity really is. He says, The essence of Christianity is centered upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The sum and substance of being a Christian is trusting Christ with the entirety of one's being. The height of the Christian life is adoring Christ. The depth of it, loving Him. The breadth of it, obeying Him. And the length of it, following Him. Everything in the Christian life revolves around Jesus Christ. Simply put, he said, Christianity is Christ. Now, Lawson was actually commenting on a passage in 1 Corinthians, not 1 John. I think I just lost my mic there. Everybody waits. There we go. We're back. Please pray with me as we conclude. Um, You missed most of it. He was writing on 1 Corinthians, not 1 John, but indeed all of Scripture from Old Testament to New points to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The Old Testament, of course, pointing forward. The Gospels describing his life. The book of Acts being about the proclamation of Jesus Christ. The epistles telling us who he is and how to follow him. And Revelation telling us that he will come again one day to judge the living and the dead and to usher in the new kingdom on earth. The Apostle John began and closed his letter with an emphasis on knowing Jesus Christ and being known by him as a child of of God. And we began these final verses last week. Three affirmations, three statements of knowledge. And we finish this week with the third, the last of his statements about what we know 
with certainty, undisputable. And these are not suggestions, they are facts. And every Christian needs to hold these facts dear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray as we turn to your holy word that you would remove distractions this morning and fill our hearts and our minds with thoughts of you and your glory and your grandeur, the work you have done to save us, your people. Lord, point us to Jesus Christ and his glory. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Now, our text this morning is the final two verses. 1 John 5, 20 and 21. Let's read them now. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So this is the third of the affirmations of what we know as believers, as followers of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords of Jesus Christ. We are in Christ, as our passage begins. We are in the Father by the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And we live as a testimony to the world about the glory of Jesus Christ and who He is and What he has done, we in essence live in answer to the prayer of Jesus in John 17, 20 and 21. He says, I do not ask for these only, speaking of the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And that is all of us, the apostolic authority of scripture, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That is the grand purpose. We are indeed in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ, as our verse says. That is what the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle John to write, so that we have knowledge, so that we know. Now, knowledge, according to Webster's Dictionary, is the sum of what is known, the body of truth information and principles acquired by humankind. So to have knowledge, you must be able to discern in some way truth from error. You have to be able to tell fact from fiction, authenticity from falsehood. And you must understand that truth is objective. It is not subjective, as the world may tell you otherwise. If your truth is different than my truth, then one of us is wrong. There is only one truth. And for certain, there is only one ultimate truth, and we find that truth revealed in the Word. And when we hear that, and we know it's true, it is revealed in the Word, we most often think of God's written Word, the Holy Bible. And that is true. It is through Holy Scriptures that God speaks to us, and every word we are told is profitable. It is true. It's important for our understanding of God and who He is for our understanding of us as his creations, his image bearers, and who we are, the sin that we are born into, the salvation that comes through Christ, and ultimately our growth in righteousness, our sanctification. God's word, his written word, is our authority. It is God speaking through the Bible. It is the ultimate standard of truth that we stand upon. Jesus made that clear 
When he prayed in John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. And we find these references all throughout Scripture. Psalm 119, 160 says, the sum of your word, God, is truth. But ultimately, that is the written word. And the written word always points to the living word. The living word. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 tie these concepts together. And it brings to light the the revelatory nature of Christ's work. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. He has revealed himself to us by the work of the Son. And the Son is who he appointed as the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Because the Son... The living God is the second person of the Trinity. He's uncreated. He is eternal. He is and has been for all eternity in perfect loving fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. John 1.1 notes that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if it stopped there, if nothing else happened, without the advent of Christ on that first Christmas, If nothing happened, the world would still know there was a God. We would know that God exists simply from creation. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Romans 1.20 makes it clear that nobody is without excuse. Anyone denying God is guilty, for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. People may suppress the knowledge of God, but they cannot truly deny Him. But if there was nothing more to God's plan than to reveal Himself through creation, we would still be lost. We could not know God savingly. The sin of our federal head, our Father, Adam, separated us from the holiness of God. We are born in sin, and our sins multiply then daily. And Isaiah, in chapter 59, points to our condition as human beings born in this way, but also to our hope in God. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or His ear dull, that it cannot hear. That is the promise. He can hear us. He can save us. But our condition, but your iniquities, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That is our condition. That is how we begin. And that is where some will stay. Ephesians 2 tells us that all people are dead in their trespasses and sins in which they once walked following the course of the world. And what did we learn last week about the world? In 1 John 5.19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Following the course of the world is no option for eternity. But that's not where God's action ended. God continued to act in His redemptive plan. And now we can know the Word because He did something amazing. John 1.14 tells us this. The Word. The Word that was with God. The Word that was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Then that is amazing. And that's how our passage begins this morning. We know that the eternal Son of God has come. Not just that He was born, 
The fact that Jesus was born speaks to his humanity. As the Jesus, the God-man, he was born. We know that the eternal, always existing, uncreated God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, he has come. He came. He existed before. He came by being born, for sure. But the word choice here is so important because he didn't just come as some eternal God in a spiritual form, a spiritual deity appearing to us everywhere. He took on a human nature. He was born Jesus of Nazareth. He lived a sinless life. He fulfilled God's law perfectly on our behalf, and yet he would willingly go and suffer and die and bear the wrath of God against our sins if we will repent, if we will believe in him. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 gives us the summary that John states in one phrase. We know that he has come. Paul writes, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. No, he didn't. He was willing to come to save us. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." This is something the Apostle John knew well. We saw as he opened the letter of 1 John, a reference back, because the Apostle John was one of the few men, one of only three men, chosen by God to accompany Jesus up on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration, where the glory of Christ was revealed. Then he began his letter telling us, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. They've seen him. They've heard him. They've looked upon him. They've touched him. They're coming to us with a powerful witness. The life was made manifest. It was made obvious to us. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So we know that the Son of God has come. And we're being told by one who has seen it. And knowledge is based on truth. And Jesus is truth, right? We know this from John 14, 6. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But not all accept that. Not all accept it today. Not all accepted it at the time. We can just think to that famous dialogue between Pontius Pilate and Jesus as he was being interrogated before he would be crucified in John 18, 37 and 38. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Isn't that amazing? It is not a purpose we often cite, but for this purpose, Jesus says, He has come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And he says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. But Pilate asks the question that plagues so many today. What is truth? 
but as an open denial. What is truth? And that question brings us full circle. What is truth? What is it that we can know? Well, John answers in verse 20. He says, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true and in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And right at the outset in this verse, you see kind of the two works of Jesus Christ being referred to. The two are redemption, which we know well that Jesus Christ came to save those who will turn to him in repentance and faith. But we also see the work of revelation. We we cannot know God, truly know God in a saving way without Christ, without Jesus, without the life, without the death, without the resurrection and ascension into heaven. He made God manifest, known among us. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We see in Jesus God himself. But then Hebrews points to his divinity. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And here you see the work of redemption. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It was finished. He reveals us, he, is, he reveals God to us, and he saves us. Now in verse 20, there are three truths, and this is kind of the outline that we will follow this morning that John lays out. These are three truths that we know. The first is that Jesus is really God. He is truly God. We're going a bit out of order from how they're stated in the verse. The second truth is our understanding, our knowing these things. It is a gift from God. It is not of our own doing. And the third, that it is only in Jesus Christ that we have life. It is only in Jesus Christ that we are forgiven of our sins and we are reconciled to our holy God for all eternity. So let's start with the first fact. Jesus Christ is the incarnation of the eternal Son of God. We start knowing He's the second person of the Trinity, but we must go back and remember what God has revealed to to us about Himself. God is one. Right? God is one. There is one God. Deuteronomy 6.4, he begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God. But this one God exists in three persons. Three persons in one nature. The Godhead is made up of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now there's a lot there. We're not going to dwell on the Trinity and try to unpack and explain that this morning. I'll just give you one example from Scripture so that you can see how God reveals this to us. In Matthew 3, 16 and 17, this is at the baptism of Jesus. And it says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, and in this statement, you will see the Father speaking and validating that this is the Son, all three persons of the Trinity. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Well, if we take a step back, we still need to remember why is John writing this letter. There is an occasion, an issue that he is writing this letter to address, and he is addressing a heresy that is among people who are still professing falsely to be Christian. 
They are still professing to believe in a Jesus, but it is a different Jesus. It is an idol, but they are still claiming to be Christian, and he is writing to them because many of them deny the humanity of Jesus, but most of them actually deny the deity of Jesus. They can accept this Jesus, but only as a moralistic good guy, a good teacher. And that should actually sound really familiar to us today, because that is the same problem that people suffer from today. But I would tell you, anybody who tells you that they just think Jesus is a really good teacher, a really good moralistic teacher, has no idea what they're talking about. They do not know the Jesus of the Bible at all because they would rapidly disagree with many of the things that you might point out, but they would disagree with one thing in particular. I I would say that there is no moral teacher alive today that any person would follow if that teacher stood up and said that unless you follow me, unless you submit to me, unless you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, you will spend eternity in a conscious state of torment and punishment for your sins in hell. You can only get away from that if you swear 100% loyalty to me and bow the knee and worship me as your God. Who would ever say that that person is sane, let alone a good moral teacher? But that is, in fact, the very claim that Jesus makes because he is the Son of God. The excuse that Jesus is a good moral teacher just begs you to answer that question by taking that person through Scripture. Because that's a lie. They don't know what they're saying. They have no idea what he taught. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He makes an absolutely exclusive claim. And that is a verse we dwell on because we must know it. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? Romans 3.23, there's not anyone among us who is not a sinner, not born a sinner, and then who doesn't compound that daily throughout life. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we all know what the right and just and fair penalty from a holy God is. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And oh, if that were only just death, and annihilation, but that is not the connotation that is being used here. This is eternal death, eternal torment, eternal punishment. But then we have a promise in Romans 6.23. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And he is the Son of God. He is not just a man. If you continued in John 14... Instead of just stopping at 6, let's read from 7 onward. Because here you are going to see Jesus make very clear his deity. He says, and he's speaking to the disciples here, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You know him through Jesus. He is revealing him. And you have seen him in Jesus. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am 
in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Why, why is he saying this, that you see in Jesus the Father? Well, you can't see God the Father. Right? God is spirit. John 4.24 tells us that. You can't see spirit. But John 1.18 says that while no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The Son who sits at the Father's side came as Jesus and made him known. He has made God manifest to us. He has shown God to us through his life. Colossians 1, 15 and 17 says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. That is not speaking of him being created. He is the firstborn, meaning the preeminent one, the one who governs, the one who owns, the one who controls all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is a verse you must know. That is a beautiful statement about who Christ is. It tells you all we need to know before we move to the next point. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the image of the invisible God. In Him, we see God the Father in His perfection. And we see Him in a way that we can know Him. And our finite human minds can try to understand Him. But these verses do something powerful too. You cannot deny Jesus' divinity. It places Jesus, the eternal Son, squarely as both the creator and the sustainer of all creation. That is powerful. Because so many will actually leave the faith or actually stop gathering with the saints because they fall into a fiction that they control and hold their lives together. But it is Jesus, and he is deserving of all of our worship. John, who began his letter, he, he referred to Jesus in those first four verses of the letter as the word of life, eternal life. And he said that, he was made manifest to us. He closes that verse, verse 20, with this powerful affirmation. He says this, He is the true God and eternal life. He is the true God and eternal life. And the word translated true here is not sort of true and false, although you could apply it that way, but there's different words in Greek for true. This means real. Uh, he's, he's the only, right? Jesus is the real God. There is no one like him. The deity of Jesus Christ is a fundamental Christian belief. It is essential to the Christian faith. Unless you believe that Jesus is truly God, in addition to being truly man, you cannot and will not be saved. You believe in a different Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible is the eternal Son of God incarnate, come in the flesh. Jesus is the true God and the eternal life. Our second truth from verse 20. It's stated at the beginning of that verse. It says, The Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Now this is interesting because we typically only state one purpose behind the virgin birth, the perfect life, the substitutionary death on the cross, and the resurrection. If you ask most people, why did Jesus come? Or at least most believers, why did Jesus come? The answer is, he came to die for us. He came to save all who the Father will give him, all who will believe in him and repent of their sins. And that is 100% true. 
There's actually nothing wrong with that answer. That should be your first answer. You have to believe that or you're not saved. He came to save. But that's not the entire reason he came and lived among us. There's another reason. It's a vital reason. It's an important reason. It is a gift that he has given those who will believe. Listen again to the verse. It states both the gift and the reason that he is giving it. The Son of God has come and has given us understanding, and here's why, so that we may know him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. Unless you are confused, the one who is true is none other than God the Father. We're sort of bouncing between Jesus and God the Father. Uh, John 17, 3. John is the author of both of these, right? And he uses the same phrasing. Here Jesus prayed, and this is eternal life, that they know you, he's praying to God the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It is just an affirmation of God's own claim. The one that we saw last week in Isaiah 45, 5, where he says, I am the Lord. He says, I am Yahweh. And there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. That's it. He is exclusive. He is the only God. But if you want to know God, you must know Jesus Christ. And this is where we must yearn for this tremendous gift because no one really starts out wanting to know God. There are many following lots of paths of spirituality and religion. You'll find it all over the internet, and people make millions of dollars on this. It's an industry. But no one wants to know God. They want the benefits that come from knowing God. They want peace in their life. They want joy. They want something to look forward to for all eternity. They want to know that they are saved, though they don't use those terms. But intrinsically, they are convicted of their sin. They're convicted of their suffering. And they want an escape, but they don't want God. They don't want the God who demands our worship. They don't want the God who removes our sin and our passions to chase sin from us and calls us together in a church to love one another, to strive for holiness together, to worship Him and glorify Him with our entire lives. That is not what they want because we are dead. We are born dead in our sins and trespasses. We are children of wrath. That is what Ephesians 2 says. Isaiah 53.6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. Romans 3.1 notes that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. That is a truth. Even though people claim God all the time, It is not God. There is only one. I am Yahweh. And there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And yet we read in our verse that Jesus Christ has come and he has given us understanding. What does this mean? What does it mean that he's given us understanding? The simple answer is that by seeing Jesus, we see God. But that's not really the answer here. If you look to Luke 10, verses 21 and 22, you see something here. Jesus, it says, in that same hour, he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. We can think of this in our own time. It's so easy to apply this today. 
Who's the idiot according to the world? It is the Christian. Who's the smart person? The person who denies that there is a God, who claims to be God in essence and determine their own truth. He's hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Do we remember that we come to Christ as little children, bringing nothing, receiving from Him grace and mercy and forgiveness? Yes, Father, for such was Your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. This is what He has come to bring. This knowledge must be given and it must be received. It's not natural. If you think it is, you only need to think back to what happened to Jesus. This is the exact point the Apostle Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 2. There he is talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. And what he is talking about is there are men and women who gathered around who watched Jesus, saw his miracles, heard his teaching, and they called out, crucify him. And they sent him to the Romans, and they did. It is not enough to just see him. They should have seen in him the exact image, right? The imprint of the glory of God. Those are the verses that we just read. That is who Christ is. But they didn't. They didn't see that. Even walking among him, him walking among them. So how does Jesus reveal God the Father to us? This is where you must understand another important reason Jesus came. He had to come, he had to die, and he had to ascend into heaven to give us this gift. We're going to stick with 1 Corinthians 2 for just a moment and then come back to the gift. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 14. We read, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, through the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. How do we understand the things that are freely given us by God? It is a divine work in us. John has been saying this over and over again in the letter. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in us, illuminating His Word, bringing you to understanding, convicting you, drawing you to Him. Verse 13, he continues, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. That is a truth you all know anytime you have shared the truth of Jesus Christ, the glorious promise, the free gift of eternal life, salvation, the joy of repenting from sin, being free from the slavery to sin and and joining in with a group of people who love you, who are called to honor Christ by submitting to Him in His church. And people will look at you like you have ten heads and reject you. You know that what the apostle is writing here is true. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly, they are foolishness to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But Jesus came to give us understanding. We've read that. 
You would need to turn, and we won't be able to go through it all this morning, but John, the Gospel of John, verse, chapters 14 through 16, lay out for us this tremendous gift of the Holy Spirit that will come when Jesus ascends into heaven. The Father will give the Spirit to the Son, and the Son will give the Spirit to His people. In John 16, 13 through 15, Jesus said, When the Spirit of truth comes, the Holy Spirit, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me. That is the primary role of the Holy Spirit. Do not get caught up in this mysticism of wanting powers from the Holy Spirit. The primary role of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son. And point you to him in all things. He will glorify me, says Jesus. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What a wonderful gift. A wonderful promise. It is through the gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus has given us understanding. This was the point Jesus made to Nicodemus. In John 3, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, an expert in the Old Testament, an expert in the law. And he saw the power of Jesus' teaching, and he saw the miracles, but he couldn't understand. He came to Jesus and he said, we know that you must be from God because you're doing these things, but we don't get it. And this is when Jesus told him, you won't unless you are born again by the work of the Holy Spirit. For no one can even see the kingdom of God unless he be born again. That is the gift. That is the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said essentially, it is impossible to understand without the work of God. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. We've hit that passage before. We know what it means is nobody can say Jesus is Lord and bow the knee and mean it and follow him as master and king of their life. A lot of people can say he's Lord and go do their own thing. But it takes the work of God. It's a theme we've seen all throughout 1 John. 1 John 4.2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. 1 John 4.13, by this we know that we abide in him, that we're saved. And he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. 1 John 2.20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, the Holy Spirit, and you all have knowledge. Right? That is where knowledge comes from. 1 John 2.27, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. It goes throughout the whole letter. Let me take you to one example, a practical example, so that you can see how God works in this way. For this, you would look to the book of Acts. In Acts 16, 11 through 15, Paul and Timothy and the other missionaries are gathering around and they begin to proclaim the gospel. They begin to teach people of salvation through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone through his death, his burial, his resurrection, and that he is the living God who ascended into heaven. And we know that not everybody accepted that message. Sometimes we read the book of Acts, we see the building church, and we get excited and we see the Paul, we want to be like him. 
But we know that most people rejected him. And all you have to do is really read the book of Acts and you'll see him run out of one town into the next, run out of that town, arrested, beaten, run out of town again, stoned, left for dead, run out of town again. Not everybody believed what he said. Most did not. It's the same today. But there was one person who believed, a very wealthy and successful woman named Lydia. She believed. Listen to what we read in Acts 16, 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Lydia heard just like everybody else heard. But God opened her heart so that she would understand and she believed and then it tells us she was baptized. And then she invited the apostles. Now, I realize this can create some doubt. For anyone who is sort of struggling and saying, but I I don't know if I have that gift of understanding, I would say that struggle is probably a sign that in fact you do. But how do you do it? What do you do? You pray. This is what the Bible calls us to do. We pray, we come confessing to Christ that we are indeed sinners and we realize that we're sinners and we realize that we need a Savior and it is through the Savior, Jesus Christ, that God has made Himself known And we ask for forgiveness. And we pledge to follow the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our life. Because we know that His love was made manifest by sending His Son to die for us. Luke 11.13 tells us, If you then, speaking to men who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Pray without ceasing. The Bible tells us. Because ultimately, the Holy Spirit points us back to Jesus. And it is the Spirit that indwells all believers. And this is a point John has made time and time again. And our last truth is that salvation is found only in Jesus Christ. Verse 20 affirms that we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. And to be in Jesus Christ is to believe in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. There's not a single person on earth who can be saved apart from Jesus Christ. There should be nothing that is more clear to you in the Bible that there is only one way, and that is Jesus. He is the narrow road. That is how we are saved. And the wonderful promise is that He will save everyone who comes to Him. In repentance and faith, he will turn no one away. But to anyone who denies Jesus Christ, they will not be forgiven. They will not receive eternal life. If you go up a few verses in 1 John 5, to 11 and 12, we read, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the the Son has life. You'd think I'd had the verse memorized, but I don't. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That is what the verse tells us. This is the testimony of Scripture. This is the testimony that by the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was conceived in the Virgin Mary. And he was born. 
the eternal Son of God taking on a human nature. And we know that testimony was that Jesus then, in that humiliation, living as a man, fully God, but fully man, in his human nature, he obeyed. He lived a life of obedience. He faced temptations like we do, though, without ever sinning. And he did this so that we might be found blameless in Christ if we believe in him on that day of judgment. When God looks and sees the righteousness of Christ instead of our filthiness because he cleanses us through his perfect obedience. And then he went to the cross. He was the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice. He suffered, he died, he endured the wrath of God on behalf of the sins of all who believe in him. But then this wonderful thing happened. He rose from the grave. He rose from the grave in defeat of death. And he ascended into heaven to the Father's right hand where he intercedes for us and from where he will return again one day to welcome his followers in, but to judge the living and the dead. Now all who turn to him, all who believe in the God-man Jesus Christ will be saved. The Bible affirms that time and time again. It points to God. God is light. Jesus is light. God is love. He has made that love visible to us through Jesus. And he is eternal life. That first coming of Jesus was not to judge the world. It was not to judge the world. It was to reveal God to us and save us. To call. You think back to Mark 1.15 where he says the kingdom of God is near. And he calls us, repent then and believe so that you might be saved. That is the first coming. That is the first coming. John 3.16 captures this so well, but it is John 3.16 through 3.18 that hits both sides of this coin that points out to us that there are two types of people in this world. There are believers, there are followers of Christ who are children of God, saved for all eternity. And there are those who deny Him who will not be saved, children of wrath. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Right? This is the first coming. He did not come to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. This is why we take the gospel to people. But it continues, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Wonderful truth. But, but, Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John has just given us this great set of affirmations about Jesus Christ. At the end of his letter, he is the giver of knowledge. He is the revealer of God Almighty. He's the giver of life to anyone who will believe in him. What a great conclusion. Wouldn't you just end there on a high note? But that is not what John does. He does not say, He is our promise, Jesus is our blessed hope, believe and be saved, and then sign off. Remember what John does repeatedly. He closes the door to arguments, right? He states things in the positive and the negative. So he has just stated positively that there is only one true living God made known through the Son, Jesus Christ, that He is deserving of all of our worship He is the only one who saves. You find life through Him. Knowledge comes from Him. 
And so if you know the only true God, if you know that Jesus Christ is God, then keep yourselves from idols. Right? That's how he closes. It makes perfect sense. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. 1 John 5, 21. An abrupt close. You have to understand that though idolatry was prevalent, like actual statues, what we think of that way, that's not what John was getting at here. It is not getting at whether or not you have pictures or images that you think are God or look like God and genuflect or do something in front of them. It's not images, it's not statues that are being worshipped. All of those things for sure are included, but that's not really what John is getting at. It is a matter of the heart. It is what you are devoted to worship. There's only one true living God. Keep yourselves from anything else. John Calvin famously wrote this. He said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And that is so true. Idolatry is as prevalent today as it was in the first century. You can see this, for example, when you actually pay attention to how people talk. When someone uses the word Jesus, or says they are a Christian, or that they believe in God, that actually tells you nothing about their faith. It's unfortunate, but it actually tells you almost nothing about their faith. Because of idolatry, it is so prevalent in our world. You would have to ask more. You would have to ask, what does this person really believe about Jesus, who he is, and what he has done, and how you know all that? How do you know? Was Jesus God in the flesh? Is he worthy of all worship exclusively? Is he the author? Is he the sustainer of life? Or is he just a really nice guy that you've created in your mind that is very tolerant and loves everyone and everything? Equally, did he die? Did he die a very real substitutionary death on the cross for all who will deny self, take up their cross, and follow him? Is that the Jesus that you follow? Did his death propitiate or atone for or appease the wrath of God against your sin? Is that why you follow him? Or do you not even think that God has that view in his holiness? Is Jesus' teaching, when you say he's a good teacher, his teaching is all of God's word, every word of it. He did not come to condemn, he represented God to us, but he did not come to represent God to us and then get rid of what God had revealed. No, every word of God's is his teaching. So is it true? Is it complete? Is it authoritative? Or is there more that's needed? Do you need someone to add to it by tradition or culture or emotion or some additional revelation? Is this Jesus that you're mentioning? Is he more than just a manifestation of God's righteous and holy love? Is he also the one who will return one day to judge the living and the dead and cast unbelievers into hell for all eternity? Is that the Jesus that you believe? See, you don't really know Because many have actually created in their heart an idol that is named Jesus. It does not reflect the Jesus of the Bible. It is not God the Son incarnate 
who is revealed in God's holy word. So here's the point John is making. Anything, anything that detracts from the glory of Christ, who he is, what he has done, that is idolatrous. Anything you elevate above God, his rightful place, as the preeminent one in your heart, that is an idol. And false notions about who God is, though you may create a God that you love very much, that is just an idol. And I will tell you, that idol does not love you in return and cannot save you. There is only one God, and he has revealed himself in Scripture. Now, there's far more to idolatry in our culture. Because an idol is indeed anything that occupies a place in our lives that should be occupied by God alone. There is one that you see every Sunday morning. You see it play out across America. I ran a search on the internet this week for it, and there are actually numbers of articles that have been written about this. It is America's new religion. And that is what it is referred to time and time again, America's new religion. Sports. Sports is America's new religion. This false idol demands unwavering commitment. Watch what people do. They cannot miss it. This can apply to those who watch it. This can apply to those who are involved in it. But they cannot miss that. There's consequences to missing that. It forms its own communities, just like the church. And these become your people. It is America's new religion. And the adherents to this religion cannot waver on their commitment, but always have in their mind, but I can worship God later. I can do something that I decide is worthy of worship later. I don't need to gather with the saints, he calls us to, but I don't need to do that. I can watch something, I can listen to something. That's good enough for the holy God. This is idolatry. That's one example. There are a gajillion examples, but like I said, there's article after article written about this as America's new religion, and you see it every Sunday. Husbands and wives can become idols. Children can become idols. Right? You can have your whole life revolve around your children. God calls us, and it's difficult for us. This isn't easy. God calls us to submit our lives to him no matter the cost. Right? He warns those who say they want to follow him, count the cost before you follow me. This is not always going to be easy if what appeals to you is something other than God. It is his glory that we are made to enjoy. We are designed to worship him. It's not our opportunities for entertainment that we are supposed to chase. It's not our spouse, actually, or our children. It's not preserving our health and thinking that we can hold on to life for one more day. That's not what we're told to do. It's not sports. It's not other activities. None of these things can dominate our life and our affections. That is what John is telling us. There is one true living God, and he came to save. And he does save those who follow him, and our affections must be on Jesus Christ and him alone. So he tells us, you know this, so guard your heart. Keep yourself from idols. It takes work. It takes dedication. Keep yourselves from idols. 
Place Christ above everything in your life. John's written this letter so that we can know that we're saved. So that we can really have the assurance that we have life found in Jesus Christ. That we can experience the love of God. What a wonderful assurance it is. It only comes one way. It comes under the lordship of Jesus Christ, the living God, the only one who saves. But we have all of these things that we know when we follow him. We will have joy. We know that we're God's children. We know that he preserves, he keeps us to the end. We know that our prayers are answered. And it all begins simply to hear, to believe, to turn away from sin, to make Christ your Lord, bow the knee, to submit to him in all things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in our weakness. Lord, it is easy for us to fool ourselves into thinking that we are honoring you while we seek to really honor ourselves. Forgive us for this, Lord. Draw us ever near to Christ. Convict our hearts. Show us our idols. Lord, we know we all have them. Sometimes, Lord, we can be so deceived, so pleased by the work of your Spirit. Reveal that to us. Convict us this week. Draw us close to brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us help one another. Let us serve one another. Let us love one another. Sharpen one another. And show the world your Son. Show the world your Son through our lives, our dedication, our commitment, and our love for one another. Father, none of this we can do on our own, and we know that, so we come humbly to you. We need you to not only save us, but to sanctify us. God, please give us a greater desire to follow you, to reach the lost, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen.